For those who are visitors, this is our last sermon in a little mini-series about money and the Christian attitude to giving. And last week and this week, we've been looking at the most extensive teaching of the subject found in the New Testament, which comes from these chapters, 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. Paul is collecting money for the churches in Jerusalem and Judea who've been under the cosh. And the church in Corinth, who had been eager to give at the beginning, hadn't seen their giving through, unlike uh, the other Greek churches in uh, Macedonia. So what Paul is doing in these chapters is encouraging them to complete what they started. And as we listen on Paul, the pastor, encouraging these believers in Corinth, we learn a number of principles about Christian giving. Last week, we looked at the first of 15 verses of chapter 8, and we learned from the example of the Macedonian churches that Christian giving, as opposed to other types of giving, involves a supernatural work of God. It involves like a receiving of God's grace and then a passing of that grace on to others. And we saw the marks of that supernatural giving. So the churches in Macedonia gave out of the most severe trial and extreme poverty. What is more, they begged for the opportunity to give, and they gave with extreme joy. And we made the observation that none of that is natural, but as a result of God's powerful work in people. And we need to be praying that God will do that work in us to make us joyful, eager, generous givers. We also saw that Christian giving is the evidence of an earnest love of Christ. That it's a good barometer, actually, of our our trust and devotion to Jesus. We saw that it is motivated by the wonderful grace of of the Lord Jesus. So a key verse, chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. So the motivation to give as Christians doesn't come from appeals. It doesn't come from being made to feel guilty. No, it flows out of gratitude to God for Jesus, for all that Jesus is, for all that he has done for us. And then finally, we saw that God is far more concerned about our attitude rather than about actually the the monetary value of what is given. So that those of us with limited means need not worry if what we're able to give is very small. God knows all about our situation and is interested in the attitude of the heart. Well, in the first section of the reading we've just had, we learn another essential principle of Christian giving. And that's this, that that Christian giving is to be beyond uh, reproach. Now, why does the uh, Apostle Paul go into such detail about the arrangements he, he made, mentioning the godly uh, credentials of the delegates and uh, demonstrating how they were chosen by the churches and were not just his mates. Well, we don't have to 
uh, guess at that because we're specifically told. Have a look at verses 20 and 21. We want to avoid any criticism of the way we administer this liberal gift, for we are taking pains to do what is right, not only in the eyes of the Lord, but also in the eyes of man. Now, it's very likely that Paul was aware of some in Corinth who were questioning his motives in organizing this collection for the uh, churches in Jerusalem and Judea. And so he's at pains to be absolutely transparent and take the necessary steps uh, to become whiter than white on this issue. And if only others had taken similar care, what scandals might have been avoided? Um, some of us will be aware that a historic case of, of uh, fraud has just actually come to light in the diocese of London. It's one of the things which, were, which was alluded to uh, in, the, in the press. Uh, I went on the internet, actually, uh, just to be preparing for this, just to s- see what stories are there. So I typed in, in Google... The embezzlement of church funds. If you want some grim reading, go and do that yourself. (laughs) It is horrific. The number of stories that are out there of treasurers and pastors succumbing to greed. But a lot of those scandals never would have happened if there were transparent processes in place that ensured honesty. Now, I've only recently joined the staff team here at All Souls. I don't yet know all the checks and balances that are in place to ensure that funds don't go astray and that every last pound is, every last pound is accounted for. But actually preparing for this sermon made me realize that that is an oversight on my part. See, actually as an ordained clergyman, I'm a member of the church council. And along with my uh, fellow council members, it is our responsibility to know how money for all souls is raised, managed, and spent. Mark can't just assume we, we are, we've got the government's responsibility. We know, should know that exactly what's happening. And not just assume that it is. There needs to be transparency. The way that we handle money and manage financial transactions actually is one of the ways that we honour God. And so, friends, I need to ask each of us that if our own financial arrangements came under independent scrutiny, would we be worried? If you suddenly received a visit from your company accounts department who wanted to go through your expenses claim with a uh, tooth comb, would you have any cause for concern? Similarly, if you were being investigated by Her Majesty's Custom and Revenue, would you have any anxiety about what they might turn, what they might come up with? Amongst Christian people, there should not be the slightest concern. On all financial matters, we should be whiter than white and be seen to be whiter than white. We honour the Lord not only by giving, but also in the honest, above-reproach way in which we organise our finances. But what I want to do 
for the rest of the time we've got this morning is to focus on this last section, verses 6 to 15 of chapter 9, where through the Apostle Paul, God gives a number of incentives to be generous, willing givers. See at the verse uh, 6, Paul says, remember this. Uh, He's effectively saying, look, don't switch off. What I'm about to say to you is of the utmost importance to your spiritual life, so pay attention. So four incentives, uh, incentives that Paul wants are ringing in their ears. And the first is this, God's principle. There in verse 6, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. And God's principle here is that giving is sowing. And straight away, God is turning upside down the way that we normally think. For the world says, what you give away, you lose. God says, no, giving whatever form it takes is like a farmer sowing his seed. The farmer, as he sows the seed, doesn't uh, uh, lose it or throw it away because in time, he will reap a harvest. But if you don't sow anything, you won't reap anything. As our verse says, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. So what would you think of a farmer who has uh, sufficient seed corn to sow his his whole uh, acreage, but only actually sows half the acreage because he doesn't want to throw away his resources? (laughs) You'd say, the man's a fool. He's, He's missing out on a much bigger return. If he doesn't use his seed, it will rot and become useless. Precisely, says Paul. So remember that principle of God in your giving. Giving is sowing. And that's the answer we should give ourselves whenever we're tempted actually to hold back on our giving. There is a a sense in actually we as Christians determine what the harvest will be. Uh, If we are a a dead, sleepy church with no outreach and no impact on the world, it won't cost us much. But if we want to be a part of a live church in which God's blessing reaches out not only to its members, but to numbers of others, well, it's going to cost us more and more. See, Paul is encouraging us to see our giving as an investment, (laughs) not just a contribution. He's encouraging us to see that our giving has a vital purpose in increasing God's kingdom. He's encouraging us to have faith in God that what we do give will produce a harvest. Giving is sowing. That's the first principle. The second incentive is that of God's priority. See there in the verse 7? Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. You see, it's the cheerful giver that God loves, and therefore that must be the priority. He wants to develop in all of us this kind of cheerfulness, jashy joy in giving. He wants us to be eager, generous, joyful givers, the sort of people who get excited when they hear of needs which they are able 
to help fulfill. And, and that is the attitude that so delights the heart of God because that attitude is so like God. And God is always delighted when he sees his rescued people growing like him. He, he loves cheerful givers. But what are the characteristics of cheerful giving? There are two mentioned in verse 7, and, and they're striking. The, the first is certainly not what we'd expect. Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give. You see, that cheerful giving is based on careful thought in the heart. It's neither coldly cerebral, nor is it kind of warmly impulsive. Now, it must be thought out from the heart, because if we're casual about our giving, we won't be generous givers. And if we're not generous givers, well, we won't have that that deep joy either. But the cheerful giving is also done freely. So verse 7 tells us that it's done without compulsion or reluctance. Because there can be no joy or, or kind of spiritual enrichment if we, we're giving kind of reluctantly, grudgingly. But I don't know about you, I have to confess that they, don't we at times know that spirit of selfishness and unwillingness that so often wells up in us? We do sometimes give reluctantly. And we do sometimes feel, well, I better give something because, you know, <laughs> whatever that something is. <laughs> And we need to keep asking God to cleanse us and, and to forgive us for that attitude. To keep bringing us back to the, the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ and see his free giving of himself to us. Which verse 15, end of verse 15, describes as, as that indescribable gift. See, the only compulsion in our giving should be the compulsion of love. Which says that if Jesus did that for me, then nothing is too great for me to give to him. It's not the compulsion of looking at other people and comparing ourselves with them. It's not the compulsion that the treasure's appeal has become so hot and strong that I better do something about it. Now it's the compulsion of the heart that God is changing a heart of love within that's been transformed by God's grace. Because what God looks for is a spirit of enjoyment and freedom in giving. Uh, two weeks ago, uh, after uh, the sermon on our Thanksgiving and gift day, we sang uh, Francis uh, Havergal's hymn, Take My Life and Let It Be Consecrated, Lord, to Thee. And the first two lines of verse 4 go like this. Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. And it's tempting for us to think of that as just the writings of a poet. But when Francis Havergal had written that hymn, apparently she went and sold all her jewellery and gave the money to the Church Missionary Society. And in a letter she was writing to a friend at the time, this is what she wrote. I don't think I need tell you, I've never packed a box with such pleasure. God loves 
a cheerful giver. The third incentive is that of God's provision, which comes in verses 8 to 11. So let's quickly look at uh, verse 8. And God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. You can't miss the alls, can you? (laughs) As that was read. God is the source of everything in that verse. He's the source of everything we need, both to prompt us and enable us to be giving Christians. Uh, Perhaps some of us might be saying to ourselves, I'd love to give more than I do at the moment, but how do I know that I'll have enough you know, for the mortgage, especially, you know, with interest rates going up as they are at the moment, or have enough, you know, for my family in the future. But doesn't it say in verse 8, so that in all things, and doesn't that include the bills and the mortgage and such like? Or perhaps you think, oh, perhaps I, I could give on a one-off, like the kind of the All Souls 20, 24 uh, project, but, but I couldn't go on giving regularly. But isn't the future covered in that next little phrase, at all times? So there's no exclusion clause in that verse, is there? Uh, God is able to make all grace abound to us, so that in all things, at all times, having all that we need, we will be able to abound in every good work. And what faith does, it takes promises, including this one, at God's word. It, it takes this promise seriously and it acts on it. It doesn't mean that we become irresponsible, but it does mean that when opportunities arrive to give and we've got the, the means uh, to, that we, we take them. So Paul quotes Psalm 112 verse 9, which is a description of someone whom the psalmist says fears, fears the Lord and takes great delight in his commands. And what does the one who fears God and enjoys obeying him do? Verse 9 gives us the answer. They have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Just how, again, the imagery is its a wonderful imagery, isn't it? It is the idea, it's the, it, it's the imagery of sowing again, isn't it? Scattering, spreading around resources to those who need them. It's the exact opposite of hoarding. They have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. And in verse 10, Paul expands on that final phrase. Now, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. So every year through the annual harvest, God provides not only enough grain for people to make bread, but also enough left over for the farmer to go out again next year and sow some more, so there will be a harvest the following year, and so on. Now, says Paul, what happens every year in the physical world of farming also happens in the spiritual realm of giving. The more you give to God, the more he will increase your resources. And the more you use your gifts, the more the Lord will develop them. There's actually 
This is just um, an outworking of a fundamental biblical principle that our Lord Jesus Christ taught on a number of occasions. With the measure you use it, it will be measured to you and even more. The more you give, the more you receive. It may not always be financial. Can I say Paul is not promoting here a crude prosperity gospel where preachers prey on the poverty and vulnerability of their hearers with promises of wealth and riches for those who give seed money to their church. It has to be said that these texts have been used by unscrupulous pastors for putting emotional pressure, particularly on the, uh, the poor. But Paul is making the point that we can trust God to provide for us and that we won't lose out. There was a Christian farmer who was very generous with his resources and he always seemed to, to have enough. So much so that one of his friends once asked him how he managed it. Well, he said, I keep shoveling into God's bin and he keeps shoveling into mine. But God's got the bigger shovel. And that's the way we're being told to live. And we need not fear because God's got the bigger shovel. God wants us to take on this vital spiritual rule that we, we can't outgive God. What we give to God is sowing. It's an investment for God gives back to us again and again. And God wants us to put him to the test. He longs to bless those whom he can trust to be consistently generous givers in every way. And not only do we need to think like that as individuals, we also need to think like that as a church. If God wants us to be doing something, well, we can trust him to supply the need to do it. Again, he won't bless us for being extravagant or irresponsible. But if we are prayerfully committed to God and the extension of his kingdom, well, then, we can trust in his grace with confidence. It means that we as a, a church can take, in that sense, uh, well, risks. <laughs> because, actually, at the end of the day, we are trusting a God to provide what is needed for his work. And as a church, as we look back over the years, and I look around, some of us here are are old-timers. We've been here 30, 40. We go, can we go 50 years? I imagine we can. But those of us who have done that, well, we've seen the truth of that, haven't we? God has blessed us as a church over the years. And then the last incentive to spur us on to be generous givers is that of God's praise. So look at verse 11. Let me actually read from verse 11 to the end of the chapter again. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ. 
You see, the, the Apostle Paul's great longing was that God should be honoured and praised. And I think it's no accident that Paul finishes these two great chapters on giving by focusing actually on the honour and praise that goes to God when his people give generously to meet the needs of others. And that praise comes from uh, three places. First, the receiver gives uh, praise to God. That's what Paul is uh, principally focusing on in these verses. Paul knows that that when their gifts get to these these poor, beleaguered uh, Christians in Jerusalem and uh, uh, Judea, there'll be a great peal of praise lifted to God. He also knows, verse 14, that it will bring about a greater affection and fellowship between the predominantly kind of Jewish churches in Jerusalem and the uh, Gentile churches in Greece, which will in turn result in more praise and honour going to God. Even when giving is anonymous, as, as much giving should be, Christians who receive those gifts will direct their gratitude towards the Heavenly Father. But in verse 12, Paul speaks of giving resulting in many expressions of thanks to God. And actually, when Christians give generously, even kind of outsiders end up kind of, well, kind of praising or, or, or being made to think about God. If Christians are stingy and only interested in uh, feathering their own nests, well, the world is not very impressed. They conclude there's, there's nothing in it. Christians are just like everyone else. But when they see Christians actually looking after one another and caring for the poor and the weak and the disabled and those who are vulnerable, they're forced to think, there must be something in this God they worship if it makes people so caring and, and generous. And God begins to receive honor and praise. So the receiver praises God, the outsider praises God, and of course, the giver praises God. Because as we've already seen, you can't help give God, and God loves a cheerful giver, and of course, that cheerfulness overflows in praise to God. He provides us with all that we need. The more we freely give to God, the more we enjoy God, and the more we end up praising God. So four incentives to be generous givers that uh, God's presented us with this morning through 2 Corinthians 9. God's principle that giving is sowing. God's priority that we be cheerful givers. God's provision that we can never outgive him. And then finally God's praise which will inevitably spring out of generous Christian giving. Well, if you want just four words to help you uh, remember. You've got, got them there. Sowing, cheerful, provision, praise. Four words just help you remember those incentives. And let me leave you with a couple of questions to consider uh, over coffee and, and, and chat. The first one, I think, is really for your own consumption to think about. When was the last time you gave with excitement and joy to the Lord? Have you never really done that? Well, pray that... God will work in your heart that you will do that. It's a great, that we'll be released to give really joyfully. And then one which I think will be good for us to chat over coffee afterwards. Which of these incentives has the biggest impact on you? It'll be good to talk to, uh, 
drive those kind of points home as we've been thinking on God's word together. Let's pray. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Our Heavenly Father, we do indeed thank you for the gift of our Lord Jesus Christ and his death on the cross for us. We acknowledge before you how generous you have been to us. Help us to have a godly perspective on the money and resources that you've given to us. Please make us generous, cheerful givers. For we ask this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.